Hey, Deep Dive listeners, this is Sean McKenna. In the run-up to the Golden Week holidays at the end of the month, we here at the podcast are taking a much-needed break, but we will be back with new episodes in May. So this week, we want to rebroadcast an episode from November that features my colleagues Jason Jenkins and Alex K.T. Martin. It explores the idea of taking fallen trees and turning them into alcohol. So imagine sitting under the cherry blossoms with your sake or beer and you're taking in the sun. What if you could drink the trees themselves? What would that taste like? Jason and Alex get to the bottom of this idea in an episode titled How Making Alcohol from Trees Could Give Rural Japan a Buzz. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, then please follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Give us a rating and tell your friends. More importantly, I hope you're all able to take a break from work during Golden Week. Now, here's the show. Alex, welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you, Jason. I'm very happy to be here. So you start the article with this interesting local legend. Could you describe it a little bit? Sure. So there's a folk tale from the Tohoku region in uh, Niigata Prefecture in northern Japan. And it's about this very old cedar tree that was planted back in the 1600s. Uh, the story goes that in 1916, uh, which is already several hundred years uh, since this tree has been planted, this milky fluid started to uh, gurgle out of the tree. And that was sake? That's what the story says. Yeah, so the story goes. Um, about 36 liters of it gurgled out, apparently, before it stopped. Wow. And this is sort of a great place to start your article because your main story is about this new method for making alcohol, safe, drinkable, high-end alcohol from trees and other wood. But before we get to that, I want to break down the significance of this discovery. When you first mentioned this in a staff meeting, I thought, well, oh, okay, alcohol from wood, sure, why not? But it wasn't until I started to read a draft of your early piece that the larger implications were just fascinating to me. Can you describe a few of them for us? Well, this is still in the early stages, but uh, large-scale production of tree-based alcohol could have some uh, very interesting implications. For example, it could help uh, reinvigorate Japan's forestry sector and uh, possibly uh, revitalize some rural areas of the, uh, the country that have been uh, hollowed out through depopulation. There's also a chance that it could decrease the intensity of Japan's uh, famous hay fever season in the spring as uh, cedar trees are cut down or replaced with different species. I want to explore each of these points, but before we get to those, uh, tell me what brought this story to your attention in the first place. Sure. So um, there's this craft beer bar uh, in my neighborhood that I frequent, and I think this was maybe three or four months ago. I visited the place after work for a quick pint. And uh, one of the customers there was a former uh, worker there. She was a hall staff, uh, recent college graduate, I think. And uh, I asked her what she was doing, and uh, she said she was living in a village in Guma Prefecture. And she said, well, the initial plan was she was hoping to help out a startup that was planning to create uh, drinkable alcohol from trees. Ah. But afterwards, I was thinking about this idea, and I started uh, Googling. And I realized that uh, this is actually a thing, and that uh, there were actual scientists involved and uh, companies involved, and uh, they were actually producing this drinkable alcohol from wood. Right. And so I decided to go meet uh, Mr. Yuichiro Otsuka, the man who pioneered this discovery. Um, he's a senior researcher at the Forestry and Forest Products Research Institute. It's a government-funded uh, institution, and he specializes in uh, applied microbiology and chemistry. Essentially, I read that he succeeded in making the first uh, potable alcoholic drink through fermenting and then distilling wood, and I wanted to learn more. 
And the key word here is potable alcohol. We're talking about drinkable alcohol. Um, quickly, let's differentiate between the two types of alcohol, or at least the two main types. We've got methanol and we've got ethanol. And methanol had actually been made from wood before, right? That's right. And that's why it's sometimes called the wood alcohol. Methanol is used to make fuel in various uh, plastics and paints, um, but it's incredibly toxic. Um, and just even a small amount can blind you or even kill you in instances. So what makes this discovery so significant is that Oltzka and his team have invented a way to extract ethanol from trees and other wood. Ethanol is the type of alcohol you find in alcoholic beverages like beer, wine, vodka, or whatever. Oh, right, right. Ethanol. That's what we find in um, the spirits. So was this Otsuka's initial plan? Was he looking for a way to do this or how did it come about? Actually, no. Um, So he was trying to figure out a way for wood to decompose in a more efficient and environmentally friendly way uh, without the need for heat or chemicals. If you're waiting for wood to decompose naturally, it can take quite a long time, uh, perhaps more than a century. Wow. Okay. So if this wasn't his original goal, what made him change course? Was there some sort of turning point or eureka moment? Yes, yes. So he was working a lot in a certain area of uh, Fukushima Prefecture, which is also up in Tohoku and known for its uh, Japanese sake uh, production because of its uh, plentiful rice harvest. And, you know, he likes his drinks. So while he was visiting Fukushima, he would uh, imbibe some uh, sake during the evenings. And at one point, he realized that, you know, perhaps what he was doing with the wood could be uh, employed for something else. And this is where the science part comes in. There's a big section of the piece where you talk about the actual chemical processes that make this work. But for the sake of brevity, is there a sort of a truncated, abbreviated way you could explain it quickly? Sure. Um, I'm no scientist. But just to briefly describe how it works. So Otsuka and his fellow researchers, um, they were searching for a way to separate and uh, extract the main components of wood. Wood's basically made of uh, polymers called um, cellulose, hemicellulose, and, and lignin. And lignin is the key because in the cell wall, this is what gives wood its really hard rigidity. Um, it's like plastic, according to Otsuka. And uh, it's also what makes trees take much longer to break down than uh, other plant matters. So what they did was they took pieces of wood and ground them down smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller into particles smaller than a tree's cell walls, which is really tiny. It's like two to four micrometers in uh, thickness. Uh, it's probably hard to sort of imagine how small that is. Yeah. Um, and this gave them access to the uh, other components of wood, including uh, the aforementioned cellulose, uh, which could now be fermented into glucose like other vegetable matter. So, I mean, that's a very simplified explanation, and I try to go into it a little more deeper in the piece. But the key here is being able to break through the cell wall uh, without using heat or chemicals um, to get the sugar underneath, just like any other plant. Right, right, right. And speaking of any other plant, I, I really like this line where you're, you're talking about how humans have made alcohol for millennia using, you know, a variety of different plants. I mean, we've got barley and hops that become beer. We've got grapes that become wine here in Japan. Of course, we have rice that becomes sake and, you know, and so on and so on. But you say in the piece, our planet's largest plants have never been offered as a libation. And this discovery is really what's going to change that, right? Yeah, um, so this is really interesting because according to what's been done so far, uh, many of the tree species, they have their own distinct flavors and aromas. For example, you know, if you're living in Japan or you've come to Japan, you may be familiar with the smell of the cedar tree. Um, they're all over the place. Um, they're called sugi in Japanese. And that smell, it translates into the flavor um, somehow. 
um, alcohol from birch trees. They're known as shirakaba in Japanese. It has a fruity smell, sort of similar to brandy. And then the Mizunara oak tree recalls elements of whiskey, uh, which is interesting because that's the tree used to make barrels to age whiskey. And I have to ask, what about sakura? What about the cherry trees? What are those like? I smelled, I think, two versions. One, the Somei Yoshino variety of cherry trees, which is the most famous perhaps because it's the one that uh, we see during the uh, annual hanami season. And also uh, the Yamazakura type of cherry tree. They sort of had like a light sort of uh, white wine-like smell, I I recall. Um, But some other people compare it to strawberries. So with a variety of flavors and aromas available, it's it's really easy to see how, you know, bartenders would see some potential here, which is where Hidayasu Kayama comes in. That's right. So Mr. Kayama, he runs a bar in uh, Tokyo Shinjuku neighborhood called Ben Fiddick. Um, and it's not just any uh, regular bar. It's actually quite famous. It's been voted as one of the best 50 bars in the world by this, uh, this very prestigious listing called the uh, World's 50 Best Bars. And once he heard about the project, this was back in 2018, I think, when uh, Otsuka and his team released a press release. Um, he immediately contacted Otsuka directly and uh, told him he wanted to uh, somehow be involved. And I think he first visited the forestry uh, institution to check it out. Right, right. So... Um Tell us a little more about Kayama and his bar, Benfitic. Right. So Mr. Kayama, he grew up on this dairy farm in a town called Tokigawa in Saitama Prefecture. It's about an hour and a half from Tokyo. And I happen to know this town because I went up to it earlier this year for peace. Um, if anybody's interested, um, if you can Google Tokigawa Japan Times, you'll probably find a story about uh, depopulation and uh, innovation, something completely different. Wow, I didn't realize that's the same area. Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. And Tokigawa is right next to a town called Hatoyama, and his high school was in Hatoyama. Again, I was up in Hatoyama several months ago to do a story on uh, the most happiest town in Japan. So there were these uh, coincidences while I was talking to him regarding his background. Oh, Tokigawa, I just, I just been there, you know, Hatoyama, I, I was there as well. So we sort of, uh, you know, got it off on a really good start. Um, but anyway, back to him. So he was a bartender at uh, Nishiazabu, a bar called, I think it was called Amber before. And then he launched his own place about a decade ago. And uh, since then, he's gone on to create it like a really world famous bar. It's like a nondescript, you know, regular building in Shinjuku. On the ninth floor, you get off the elevator and you see this little sort of uh, wooden sign with the, uh, the name Ben Fiddick engraved on it a small candle lighting it up. And then from the door, you can sort of vaguely hear Renaissance music pouring out. And you open the door, very woody sort of interior. Um, You see these stained glass lamps hanging from the ceilings and they're decorated with these herbs. There's like a a head of a deer, a head of a deer. Uh, Like a a stuffed, like deer taxidermy. Right, right. right, Hanging on the wall. And it has this really medieval sort of feel. Uh Um, And uh, I think that's sort of the vibes that he's trying to sort of uh, produce in his bar. And he uses a lot of herbs and other botanicals um, that he actually uh, picks up from his farm in Tokigawa. So almost every week, I think he goes back to his farm, his garden, and he picks out these herbs, plants, whatnot. He brings it back to his bar and he creates these cocktails. So it's easy to see his interest from a professional point of view or an Epicurean point of view. Uh, But that's not his only interest here, right? Right. So he also saw the potential of uh, revitalizing his hometown, Tokigawa, and uh, other similar sort of villages and towns dotting Japan's uh, rural landscape uh, by sparking interest in the local lumber trade. 
Tokigawa, his hometown, uh, was famous for its woodwork. Um, they would have artisans creating uh, what's called tategu. These are sliding doors uh, used in uh, Japanese homes um, for centuries and centuries. Um, but what happened was more imported wood came in, and they stopped using locally produced wood. And uh, this is not just the case in Tokigawa, but in Japan in general. Um, there's a huge reliance on imported wood, and there's a lot of uh, woodlands that's being uh, untreated, uh, not cut down, just left on its own. So he thought that uh, perhaps this uh, uh, new wood alcohol um, could spark more interest in local wood trading, uh, logging, and uh, perhaps even be utilized to uh, promote these areas. Yeah, let's talk a little about uh, lumber in Japan, or maybe forestry in Japan in general. Would you want to start with present day, or you want to go back in history a little bit? Maybe just a little bit of history. So to begin with, um, roughly two-thirds of Japan's landmass is covered with forests, extensive forests all over the place. And during World War II, however, large portions of these were uh, cut down and to support the nation's military. And then even more was cut down after the war uh, for housing and other construction demands as the uh, country tried to rebuild itself. And large swaths of these areas that were cut down, uh, they were replaced with uh, fast-growing conifers like cedar and cypress trees. And uh, a lot of people say this might have been poor planning, really. What do you mean? Well, you know, um, cheap imports began to come in the 1960s, and these cedar groves gradually became unattended since there wasn't the time or incentive to keep these forests in a healthy place. Um, and what happens is, you know, the results are these dark, dense, unhealthy forests with uh, limited undergrowth, and they're prone to landslides and flooding, which is becoming a major problem now, um, especially during typhoon season every year. But perhaps more importantly to many people in Japan, it goes back to what we discussed before, but uh, cedar trees produce a lot of pollen, lots of pollen. If you go during the springtime to the countryside, you'll see uh, uh, benches by the stations or houses covered with this yellow dust. This is all pollen. And uh, anyone who's suffered from hay fever in the spring season can point to these massive cedar forests as one of the causes. Yeah, it's, uh, it can really make some people miserable during that uh, hay fever season. So how does this connect with Kayama? Right. Well, if the project moves forward and actually uh, materializes and becomes a thing, then these cedar forests could actually be a source of alcohol um, and could perhaps even provide an incentive for locals and other people to cut them down. At the same time, this also goes back to what uh, we discussed before, it could rekindle an interest in domestic lumber to be used for housing construction and other woodworking traditions and products. And this would be part of kind of a knock-on effect for something on a grander scale, right? Right. So part of the goal, I think, is to not only revitalize the forests, but the forestry industry itself, including related industries in local areas, such as construction, um, various artisanal woodworking, things like that. Um, and, for example, the average age of uh, Japan's forestry workers are now around 65, and the job doesn't pay too well, so the numbers are dwindling. Um, in Tokigawa, uh, one of the people I interviewed for the story said there's probably only two loggers left. Wow. Yeah, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not many. Not so, many. Yeah. So if there was a thriving forestry sector in Japan, then you'd have uh, more trees planted and a larger workforce, perhaps, uh, which could in turn also revitalize the population of some rural areas, such as Tokigawa. So what I'm hearing is better forests, thriving rural communities, less hay fever, and maybe some new cocktails. That sounds pretty good. That's the plan. But when I 
initially started reporting on the topic, I think one of the concerns my editors raised was, would this not give incentive for uh, you know large businesses to come in and just raise trees all over the place, which could be you know obviously environmentally uh, damaging. The one thing I should mention is that Otska and his uh, forestry association, this government-funded institution, uh, they have a patent for this uh, technology. So they basically own the rights when it comes to how to create this booze. So I think what they're trying to do is they're looking out so big shots don't come in and actually just, you know, destroy the whole environment. The point is rather to use uh, waste wood, trees that haven't been harvested, um, things like that, to promote an environmentally friendly and sustainable thing by creating alcohol and using that as a boon for tourism. Okay, we have Otska, the researcher. We have Kayama, the mixologist. But there's one more player that we need to introduce. Right, exactly. And that's uh, Mr. Yuya Yamamoto. He's the uh, founder and CEO of the Ethical Spirits & Co., which is a sustainability-focused alcohol and uh, beverage producer. So together with Mr. Kayama, uh, Mr. Yamamoto is working to make a product tentatively called Wood Spirits. I'm pretty sure they're going to go with that title, but uh, for now, I'll say tentatively called. That's based on uh, sustainable alcohol production using wood. I love that double meaning with uh, wood spirits. It's almost like a nod to, you know, the local religion of Shintoism or perhaps sort of something about uh, Hayao Miyazaki's famous movie, Princess Mononoke. But anyway, tell me a little more about Yamamoto. Sure. So Yamamoto-san is the head of Ethical Spirits. He's also the CEO of a company called uh, Mirai Sake Company. It's hard to explain what this company is, but they do have uh, physical stores and they sort of emphasize on promoting the uh, the backstories of each brew of sake. So anyway, he would regularly tour around uh, sake breweries in the nation. And when you make sake, um, there's this leftover byproduct called the uh, lees. Yeah, when I think of lees... I would compare it to like the dregs left over from winemaking. Is that a fair assessment? Right. I think that's fairly accurate. Um, in, in Japanese, we call them sake kasu. So there was a lot of the sake kasu or lease material left over after the sake was made. And these breweries you know, had nothing they could do with it. Um, they would give it to uh, people who would want some or ask people to you know, go dispose of it. But in either case, they would be left with a huge amount of sake kasu with nowhere to go. And that's where Yamamoto saw a potential. Um, he asked if he could you know, buy it or take it off their hands, which they did. And then he turned around and used it to make gin which actually went on to win an award. That's right. It it won the Country Winner Prize for Contemporary Gin at the World Gin Award in 2021, right? That's correct. And that was the last brand of uh, craft gin they make from uh, Sake Lee's. And then in 2020, he launched Ethical Spirits, the company. And the following year, last year, he opened a distillery in uh, Kuramae, which is this old school sort of uh, hip area in Tokyo. And there the firm worked on uh, creating other craft gin brands, including one called Revive. I think this uses surplus Budweiser beer, if I'm recalling correctly. And there's also another gin called uh, Cacao Ethique, or Ethique, which is made from uh, discarded cacao husks. Okay, so Yamamoto completes our trifecta of key players now. We have the scientist who discovered how to make the alcohol, and we have the famous bartender here to market and to sell it. And now we have the the money. We have the CEO who can distribute it. So what's the future look like here? That might be the most interesting point. What will bottles of distilled spirits from wood make in the uh, marketplace? You know, how much are they going to cost? 
Obviously, alcohol is a multi-billion dollar industry, I think $56 billion at this point to be exact, and that's projected to reach $92.9 billion by 2032, a decade from now. But there's an even higher end market beyond beer, wine, and sake, and I'm talking about aged spirits. Um, Some of these bottles can sell for incredible prices. What kind of prices? Give me an example. Well, Japanese whiskey, as you know, has been uh, extremely popular over the past decade. Um, They sell for hundreds of thousands of yen uh, per bottle. Um, If you go online, you can easily find out. And typically, the more they're aged, the better. Um, For example, a bottle of uh, Yamazaki, uh, 35 years, it was initially sold uh, with a retail price of uh, 500,000 yen. 500,000 yen. uh, That's, I don't know, 3,500 US dollars. I mean, that's in yen depressed dollars today. It may be different when, whenever our listeners are listening, but that's not, that's not cheap. Right. So, you know, 500,000 yen, that's the uh, initial retail price for Yamazaki 35. I went on Google the other day and searched for the same whiskey and I noticed it now sells for about 20 or 30 times that figure, which is an insane amount. So what happens when you make liquor out of a, for example, a 400-year-old oak tree? Uh, You know, no one's going to cut down an ancient tree just to make whiskey out of it. But, uh, you know, once in a while you find, you know, huge storms are ravaging Japan and these massive ancient trees uh, falling down. Some might be even, you know, 1,000 years or older. And what happens is, you know, they would unfortunately be, you know, laid to rest. But perhaps uh, with this technology, you can recycle these really old trees and make them into uh, alcoholic beverages. Now, you cannot compare aged whiskey or aged spirits uh, with wood spirits using old trees because it's a different process entirely. However, the story behind uh, such a product could be really interesting. My point being, when I was visiting Otsuka at his laboratory in Tsukuba, he showed me two bottles of uh, cedar wood spirits. One was eight years old. The tree was eight years old, so it's quite a young tree. The other one dated back from 1868, which is the year of the Meiji Restoration. (laughs) So... So, you know, you have these two wood spirits, one's eight years old, one's 1.5 centuries old. It comes from, you know, a very important time in history for Japan. The story behind uh, such a bottle of booze is quite interesting. And, you know, when you actually, let's say both bottles are at a bar and I wanted to, you know, have a shot at each, how much are they going to be priced at? You know, it's extremely interesting from, uh, from various perspectives. It really is. And you write about some of the ways that various regions in Japan could utilize not just making the liquor, but the stories and the ideas behind the trees, right? Exactly. So one idea that uh, Otsuka has been promoting from the onset of inventing this technology is how it could help local areas in Japan um, with tourism. For example, you can use certain trees from an area and uh, distill them and use local spring water, for example, and maybe even make uh, your own wood spirits blend uh, using several different tree species from the same area. And that could be potentially used to promote, you know, a certain village or a certain town saying, you know, this bottle of wood spirits was made from local trees and local spring water. This is essentially, you know, the town and, you know, have a sip. So there's various different ways to market this product, I think. And that's people haven't uh, really explored everything at this point yet, but I'm quite interested to see how it might uh, turn out. Yeah, the ramifications are really interesting as far as telling the stories of various places in Japan as well. And you spoke to one expert on this. Yes, I did. I reached out to Mari Ninomiya, who is an associate professor at the uh, Osaka Metropolitan University's Graduate School. And she's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sakeology. 
And she told me she believes that there really could be an amazing market for this, especially with the recent boom in craft gin, uh, which she thinks would be Wood Spirit's main competitor. Right. So when do we expect to see bottles like this on the shelves? The initial plan from what I hear was to release something by the end of this year. But with the war in Ukraine and the pandemic and all that, there's various sort of uh, disruptions in uh, trade. And uh, they're having a hard time importing some uh, components to create the booze. So at this point, they're aiming for next year or early 2024 at the latest. I will drink to that. Me too. Come by. <laughs> Alex Martin, thank you so much for coming back on Deep Dive. Thank you, Jason. It was my pleasure. Production for Deep Dive is by Dave Cortez. Our intern is Natalia Macohon. The outgoing song was written and produced by Oscar Boyd. And our theme song is by the Japanese musician 4L. Until next time, Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.